Hi, I'm Tara. And I'm Steph. And we're from Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors. And our team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help authors reach new readers around the world. With Kobo Writing Life, authors can now publish audiobooks and ebooks right in their KWL account. We don't ask for exclusivity and you'll always control your pricing in up to 16 currencies. You can also create a pre-order for your audio and ebooks with no date limitations. We have a lot of great promotional opportunities for Kobo Writing Life authors available in the promotions tab right in their KWL dashboard. If you're an author and you don't have access to the promotions or audiobooks tab, email us at writinglife@kobo.com and we'll get you sorted. We're all about providing excellent support. Create your free account today at kobo.com/writinglife. If you want to learn more about Kobo Writing Life, check out our blog, podcast, and find us on social. Happy writing! Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business: editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author JD Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers Inc. Welcome to the Writers Inc. podcast. This is a little new thing we got going on here. We've got uh, JD and Zach Bohannon. What's up, fellas? How you doing, man? I, we're celebrating over at my house. Our, the Wicked Witch to my west, she flew out to California to, to visit her, her new granddaughter. And apparently she is staying out there until the virus is done. So until the vaccine wow. is behind us, everything, like she's, she's just, she's staying out there. Her husband is outside smiling, raking the leaves, like everybody's all happy, like there's birds out there singing. It, it, it's a beautiful day in my neighborhood right now. <laughs> we just met one American who doesn't want the vaccine. <laughs> He's like, just hold off. No, we're waiting on that vaccine. Not yet, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's just it's it just seems so nice and calm out there right now, and and it's it's like her husband is such a nice guy, and like she is just the opposite, and I just I don't get it. Um, I hate I, this I, lady. I've never even met her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she um well luckily all our major projects are kind of behind us we've got all our permits and everything we need so there's nothing she can do to us anymore other than you know scowl from the driveway but it, it just it feels lighter out there just knowing that she's not around <laughs> That's what's cool, going man. on with, what's you up guys? with you zach oh nothing i've got you know a couple a little bit of family in town for thanksgiving and still i'm you know when they're here you know i'm i definitely we'll make sure I hang out with them, but they, my, my wife just kind of wants to hang out with her mom and her sister. So I end up just kind of sneaking off. I've been getting a lot of work done actually. So it's been, uh, it's been good. Yeah. I've just been, I've just been plugging away. I'm trying to get uh, the second book in my dead South series done. I'm in revisions right now. So, um, just been plugging away on that while the family is out. They're out of the house now. Think, you know, but (laughs) as I was telling you guys before, so I can say whatever I want and stuff. And, but, uh, but yeah, everything's been going good. Cool. Cool. Yeah, we've had a, a busy week here. We had that uh, bonus episode, if you heard it last Tuesday as you're listening to this, and there continue to be developments on the uh, the Amazon AX, ACX Audible Gate thing, and uh, we'll keep I just have to on s- that. I have to say, like, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I wasn't on the bonus episode with you guys. I actually think it's amazing this is just now coming up. 
Like, and I, I read, I listened to y'all's podcast. I read the whole article and stuff that she wrote. And like, this is not a new thing that audible has been. I mean, I've been an audible member forever and they've been pushing this for a long time. And I, and I've always thought like, wow, that's really a weird thing, but I just have never really thought about it as an author. And I just think it's really interesting that it's taken this long to come to light. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's interesting. Well, if you would have said something sooner, maybe I could have been the hero (laughs) for this. That's very, very true. Yeah. It's honestly, I I think it's just because the numbers are buried, you know, like I've went through all my statements from audible and I I normally don't look at them. And we talked about that too. Like I I should, but I don't, Um, but you know, they're, they're giving us net numbers. So I've got a decent number of audiobooks that sell every month. I've got no way of knowing, you know, if they're taking 50 off the top of that and, you know, sending me the, the results. Like there's just, there's no way to, to yeah. really tell, but I don't know if you saw this, but I got an email yesterday and it looks like Amazon blinked a little bit. Um, they, they've got a canned response they've been sending to anybody that, that writes to them about this particular issue, but they, they added a paragraph to it. And the, the latest paragraph says effective as of January 1st, 2021, audible will pay royalties for any title returned more than seven days following purchase. Yeah. So that, that's a, that's a big shift for them. Um, That's a big deal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've got, sorry, go ahead. And then I'll say, no, I was just going to say money wise. I mean, that, that one statement could be a hundred million dollars, you know, out out of their, their pocket. Um, the, the problem with it is, you know, like we still don't know the, the impact of this, you know, going back the last seven, eight years or however long this process has been going on. Um, one of the other things we have to trust them to tell us if it was within seven days or not. Yeah. And I, I absolutely trust Amazon 100% with everything that they tell me. (laughs) Um, I had a conversation with my agent last night because, you know, there's a lot of people just trying to figure this out right now. And she told me that the contracts between the traditional publishers and Audible are different than the arrangements that independent authors have with with Audible through ACX. So in in like one instance, and without going into publishers' names, if if somebody listens to more than 20% of the book, the publisher gets paid for that that purchase no matter what. Um, But Audible still has that, you know, exchange return button available, which means, you know, after that, that period, they'll still allow a listener to exchange it um, but audible ends up eating that 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 difference whereas for an indie author they're charging it back um, and there's also differences there on the, the KU side too this isn't isn't exclusive to audible the, the, the arrangements that traditional publishers have for Kindle Unlimited are different than the ones that independent authors have um, so I, I really think before all this is over we're gonna have to see a full accounting we're gonna have to find out exactly how many returns we've had per author you know per title going back to the beginning of this figure out what that dollar amount is and I you know unfortunately I think there's gonna be a class action lawsuit I don't see any other way to, to resolve yeah. this somebody's gonna figure out what that dollar amount is you know attorneys are, are obviously chomping at the bit you know they, they smell the money there uh, they'll take their 30 or 40 percent of that total and they'll they'll work on collecting the rest and then hopefully you know moving forward Amazon will you know, throw up, you know, our, our return numbers on our statements and there'll be some, you know, this, this will all be visible, you know, some transparency. Yeah. And I, you know, I personally, I obviously, I hope something really good comes out of this and change happens. Cause I'm always, and Jay knows this, you know, cause we talked about this a lot on career author, you know, I'm obviously always really skeptical with Amazon because at the end of the day, I think what authors need to remember is that they don't really care about us. Like they care about their customer. And, um, you know, I told this story before, you know, before I was full time doing this, I worked at a company who dealt with Amazon a lot. And I mean, I'm saying they would they would put in four or five hundred thousand dollar orders with us every single week that we had to fulfill. And they would try to bully us around. And there was one point where they tried to get fifty thousand dollars from us for marketing. And my boss was like, we're not paying you that. And literally the only way 
to get Amazon to listen to us was we had to quit filling their orders. We, at one point we went eight weeks without fulfilling any of their orders. And that was the only way they listened. Like that, that got their attention. So like it's, I say that to say, because we're not all going to go pull our books off Amazon and off audible to get their attention, <laughs> you know? So right. like, I'm, I'm hoping that, that some positive stuff does come out of this and that they do change. Like, cause this, it is ridiculous. So. I, I, but, and, and, and like you said, we're, we, you know, we won't do a whole episode on this, but the, the one thing about this whole thing that, that troubles me and I, there's not, there's not a solution for this is we are still, no matter what happens, we're going to be counting on Amazon yeah. for reports. And I, like, who knows, right? Like, who knows how many page reads have been suppressed, how many sales have been suppressed. Like, we, we just have no idea, and we won't. And, and you know, that's, pri- that's part of the uh, price of playing this game, but that's, that's kind of disconcerting. Yeah, I mean, I try to look at the positive side of it. I mean, if Amazon has basically thrown independent authors a business that didn't exist before. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the way you know, I try to look at. It yeah, too. you got you got to be grateful for that, but at the same time, it it is a business, so we all have to learn to work together. Um, I know Audible is going through its struggles of its own, you know, trying to figure out how to compete against Spotify and some of these all-you-can-eat services that are coming out. Um, you know, many of the traditional contracts don't allow for streaming of audiobooks. You know, so you know they they have to be you know based on on individual sales. So either contracts have to be readjusted in order for Audible to go to some kind of all-you-can-eat platform, um, or they need to find some kind of common ground. You know, I, I think their exchange policy is basically their their you know band-aid. It's it's how they're they're dealing with that for now. Um, and unfortunately it's coming back to bite them. So I, 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 I don't think there was any, you know, maleficent intent, no bad intent, you know, like in, in all this, I, I think everybody's just trying to survive, including, you know, audible. Um, and I think in the end, everybody's going to end up doing the right thing. It's just a matter of figuring out what that right thing is and everybody agreeing to it. Yeah. It just underlines, uh, undermines a lot of confidence. That's the, yeah, absolutely. That's what hurts, but. Well, this uh, this episode we have coming up, uh, Zach kind of prepped the conversation for us, so I'll kick it to him in a moment. But this is the thinning line between indie and traditional publishing. So we are going to talk a little bit about how those uh, two camps are starting to come together in uh, organic ways. It's, I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Uh, a few other things here to mention before we get into that. We uh, I, I did a slight projection and it looks like we're about uh six to eight weeks from reaching half a million downloads uh which is really cool uh so thanks to everyone who's listening and who everyone who continues to listen uh that, that's quite a milestone and uh, we'll certainly mention it when i when i see the uh the numbers turn over on the odometer <laughs> i'm really curious how many times i've said um in, in that entire <laughs> that entire time well i don't know half a million times <laughs> Boy, Don't worry, I say you know a lot. If, so, if somebody's playing that drinking game, we're in trouble. Ago. I'm trying to be better. So. <laughs> All you right. know, maybe I'll maybe I'll swap. I'll start. I'll go with you know moving forward. Yeah. No, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, one quick reminder that we do have the Career Author Summit 2021 tickets on sale. If you go to thecareerauthor.com slash events, you can grab yourself the in-person or the virtual ticket. It is looking more and more like that is definitely going to happen in September of 2021, and we'd love to see you guys there. So uh, make sure to check that out if you're interested. Yeah. All right, Zach. So uh, the thinning line between traditional and indie publishing, uh, you kind of prepped this conversation for us. Uh, you want to set, set the table? Yeah, I just thought this would be <clears throat> kind of an interesting conversation. One, um, this kind of came up because it kind of came up naturally 
because when we ended the career author and decided to go this route and do this, one of the main criticisms I saw, and I saw this from several people who were disappointed about the career author ending was they were saying, oh, well, I'm only really interested in indie publishing and I'm not really traditional. And I think the three of us agree, and I know JD was pretty vocal about this when we started talking about that, is that that line is really thinning and that it's, it almost seems a little um, short-sighted to be completely shutting yourself off from one or the other. Um, and so I thought it'd just be really kind of a good conversation for the three of us to have, especially since, um, you know, I, I'm really kind of entrenched in the indie world, but want to eventually look at going hybrid. Jay is in the process of kind of trying to move hybrid. And then JD, you obviously have the, you have your feet in both camps pretty, pretty clearly. So I thought it'd be kind of good for us just to, I don't know, maybe talk about some of the misconceptions and just kind of have like an overall, I don't know, like uh converse, like discussion about it. Um, I, I like JD, I figured you specifically probably have a lot to say. So no, I think I've said everything on it. I think we could wrap. <laughs> All right. So let's go. Wrap <laughs> That's up, the yeah. end of the writer's Inc. podcast. Uh, you know, honestly, it's, it's funny how much I've seen this change over the last few years because, you know, I, I've, I've been in the industry for a very long time. I had 20 plus years, you know, working behind the scenes before I decided to put out that first book. And when I had finished Forsaken, I reached out to a lot of friends of mine that had, you know, done very well. You know, they were New York Times bestsellers, number one New York Times bestsellers, that kind of thing that I had started with back in the day. You know, so I saw their entire career grow. And, you know, th this conversation, the, you know, should I go indie or should I go traditional was, you know, kind of new at, at that point in 2014, um, where people were actually talking about it. I think before that it still happened, but people weren't openly talking about it as much as they were. Um, so I started reaching out to some of these guys and every single person that I talked to on the traditional side said, no way, don't ever do that. You're going to get blacklisted. Um, that's, you know, it's, it's one step above vanity, you know, publishing. If, if, if that, um, you just, you don't want to do that unless you've got no other choice. Um, you know, now you, th this was 2014. Now you flash forward to now, like I'm getting calls from some of those very same people that are, are saying, you know, how difficult is it to indie publish a title? Or, you know, I've, I've got some of my backlist titles back and I don't know what to do with them. Like I, you know, like they're not out there anymore. They're not available in, in, in print or ebook or anything. They're, they're mine. They're sitting here. You know, I just, I don't know what to do, you know? So like people are starting to come around full circle. And, and I think it, you know, they're asking that same question that, that I do, you know, when I, I finish up a book, you know, what's the best way to get this in front of, you know, the, the right audience, or in my case, the largest audience or who or a new audience or whatever it might be. But it, it's coming down to what's the best way to publish this book. And it, it's not necessarily traditional. It's not indie anymore. And, you know, a couple of years from now, there might be some other option available out, out there. Who knows? Um, there's an article that I just I sent you guys um, yeah. earlier today that came out in Publishers Weekly with um, it's an interview with Hugh Howey, um, you know, because he obviously indie published a, a lot of his titles um, and he struck a couple of, you know, hybrid deals. Um, we happen to have the same agent, um, Krista Nelson. Um, but for his Wolf series, you know, he indie published those um, and she was able to negotiate a deal uh, with Houghton Mifflin and Harcourt where they're going to put out the print versions of those books. But he gets to retain his ebook rights. Um, you know, obviously that's huge. Um, and I can see that kind of thing happening more and more. Um, as, I, as far as I know, JK Rawlings owns the ebook rights for the, the Harry Potter, Harry Potter series too. Right. So technically that's, that's indie published, you know, I'm sure she's got a big corporation behind it because of the dollars, but you know, from a business standpoint, process standpoint, it's the same thing. Now I've heard though, that that's cause like <clears throat> me and Jay know, uh, we have a buddy, Nick Sansbury Smith who had a similar deal where he, he got to keep the, uh, 
ebook rights, but sold the print to uh, Simon Schuster, I believe, uh, for mass market. Um, but I've heard that that's like a deal that traditional publishers are not willing to do anymore. Like they want the ebook rights too, and getting those paid those print book only deals are really really difficult like so are you saying that's not necessarily true no i, I it's definitely difficult to get like I, I know when Hugh walked into that conference room you know he had a spreadsheet in front of him he knew exactly what those titles were making him dollar or wise yeah. and and you know hmh um or any publisher that he, he spoke to at that point you know they would have to give him reason to to consider giving that up um, you know, I, I, I have, I don't know the specifics. I don't know what kind of, you know, dollar amounts HMH threw out there for him, um, distribution, things like that. Um, but it, it had to be a sweet deal. I'm, I'm sure in order for, for Hugh to take that, um, because he walked away, you know, from some, from, you know, a decent paycheck. Um, that being said, you know, I, I think the traditional guys, and especially because of this virus now, they're starting to see the value of those eBooks. You know, before it was, you know, their, their bread and butter was print, um, up until this virus, it still was. Uh, but now they're starting to realize that ebooks aren't just you know something we have to do um, because people you know want want an ebook occasionally. It, it's something that we're going to need to do. Um, it, it's part of that that process, and I think those sales numbers right now that that's what's sustaining them. You know, there's still print books being sold, but I would love to see what the numbers are. You know, and how much they've been skewed by this virus. It's probably completely flip flopped at this point. Um, they're realizing that, and that's why we're seeing you know the, the residuals of that. We're seeing Facebook ads. You know, the, the marketplace getting flooded with traditional published, you know, they're taking out Facebook ads, they're taking out Instagram ads, they're running book bubs, they're doing all the things that indies have been doing forever. Um, I think they would have eventually got there, but this virus has just forced everything to move much, much faster. Yeah, I and, and I wonder, like, you know, looking at it from the indie perspective, I know that, you know, I, I think for most, like, for me, I'll just talk for me specifically, like, I know one reason why I have been had previously been hesitant about going traditional and why I'm, or, or, you know, as Jay likes to say, pursuing a traditional deal because you can't choose to traditionally publish, you know, um, you can pursue it. Um, but you know, part of the reason for me is just because I question, I've been trying to question like what a traditional publisher can really do for me, um, with bookstores being the way they are and how they've already been dying. But now you look at what you're saying with the pandemic, like how, um, you know, how how much are bookstores really how much longer are they really going to be around like you know the way we know it and kind of the place i've gotten to though is i still feel like you know because it's it's really freaking hard for me to sell physical books like i mean i'm I'm pretty much all my sales come from ebooks and audiobooks um and and so but i know there's a lot of people out there who only read quote-unquote real books you know (laughs) so um and I and I do feel still feel like there's a place where traditional publishers can help me reach an audience um, that I necessarily cannot reach on my own. And I'm and I still believe and I think maybe you'll agree that even if bookstores are kind of going away, that that's probably still going to be the case, that they're still going to be able to help people like me reach a new audience I haven't reached before. Well, what I'm finding and, and I think this is just the result of me being hybrid. Um, you know, a lot of my traditionally published books, like 
um, they, they found their ways into pl- into places that uh, an indie published title might not, you know, like the libraries, you know, for instance. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, so like I, I Forsaken, you know, I, I initially out of the gate, you know, I, I indie published that and, and, you know, the sales at the very beginning were okay, but they weren't spectacular, um, but ultimately ended up selling about a quarter million copies. Um, but in that initial period, you know, I, I went out to bookstores because I didn't know any better. So I sent letters out to every bookstore. I, I bought a mailing list. I, you know, emailed them. I sent them letters. I wrote to every library. I think I, I sent letters to like 20,000 different libraries to try and get them to pick up that title. Um, you know, and I could see what was moving on the print side and, and very little was. And I, I had it in the Ingram catalog. So it was available as a hardcover. Um, it was available as soft cover. You know, they could get it if they wanted to, but they just weren't. Um, but then Fourth Monkey came out, you know, traditionally published title that went into all the libraries, went into all the bookstores. And what ended up happening is my audience, you know, that found me through Fourth Monkey decided they wanted to see some of my indie tel- titles through that same format. You know, so if they got Fourth Monkey at their library, they went to their library and said, hey, I want to read Forsaken. I want to read this one. I want to read that one. Um, that caused those libraries to start placing those orders. That was one of the reasons why I worked out a deal with um, Baker and Taylor, because although Ingram does distribute to libraries, they do it through Baker and Taylor. Um, so a library, you know, libraries for the most part, probably 99.9% of them use Baker and Taylor for distribution. Um, so they place an order with Baker and Taylor and Baker and Taylor will either fulfill that order on their own, or if it's not a book that's in their catalog, they get it through Ingram. Um, so they, you know, one way or another, it, it flows through that. Um, by going directly through Baker and Taylor, I was able to, to basically make a couple extra pennies for myself because I'm eliminating a, a potential middleman. Um, but I'm, I'm able to see those, those numbers now. And, you know, my last couple of indie published titles, you know, the ones that I published in English, you know, like they're selling like hotcakes to libraries, you know, which wasn't the case before. And I think once you get your foot in that door, it's, it's difficult for anybody to kind of keep you out. You know, like it's, it's one of those clubs you just, as an indie author, I think to get to the next level, you need to be in there. So Jay, to kind of bring you in the conversation, I'm curious, like, cause you and I obviously talk to a lot of indie authors and stuff and have a lot of those people in our community. Like, what do you feel like is kind of some misconceptions that we run into a lot with the indie authors have about trying to pursue a trad deal? Like the, what comes to mind? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I'll preface the answer to that by saying, I, I really feel a, a shift in the attitude from indies towards traditional. Publishing. And I do too. Yeah. I think, uh, seven, eight years ago, it was very antagonistic. Um, there were camps and like you were flying your flag and, and I won't call them out, but there were, you know, certain podcasts and websites who were like, we are Indian proud and like, and trad is evil. And, and I, that's really softened a lot. And in the conversations I'm having with clients and in private communities, it seems like Indies are now considering the pursuit of a trad deal as an option. And I think the other shift that's occurred was at one time, it seemed to be a binary decision. Like you either had to be indie or you had to have an agent and go trad pub. And now I think indie authors specifically are seeing options per book. Yeah. So you it's don't a book have by to book. Make it, it can be a book right. by book decision. That's yeah. right. It doesn't have to be a career decision. It's a book by book decision. So I don't think the misconceptions from from the indie side about pursuing traditional publishing are they're not nearly as as uh, relevant or apparent as as they were at one time. And I'm getting a lot more questions now about 
people asking like what I'm doing with the manuscript that, that JD's helping me with and, and what are my plans, you know, after that and are there agents that you're looking at? And it's, it's much more inquisitive than it was uh, even, even three or four years ago. That's interesting. And mm -hmm. so like, <clears throat> and what, what shift do you feel JD has happened on the trad side where, cause you mentioned earlier that you have a lot more, authors you know who have been solely traditional published who are now interested in indie like what do you think the shift has been from that perspective well i, I think they're seeing a lot of the the money and the attention flowing to their the top producers you know so that the big name authors at those trad publishers are the ones that are getting the big marketing dollars so the the mid-listers are, are really feeling that crunch right now um that that's part of it um, traditional, you know, publishers, I think they're also looking at indie, you know, the indie marketplace as a proving ground, um, where they didn't before, you know, like if you go back 15 years ago, you know, somebody would write a book and it would go, you know, agent would love it. They would send it off to an editor. That editor would love it. They take it to their marketing people because that's who ultimately makes the buy decision. Marketing people would say, yeah, this is something we can sell. Um, and then they'd stroke a big check for it. Um, and if it's a debut, you know, where there's no sales numbers behind the author, behind the title, behind anything, that, that number on the check is, is totally total speculation. It's either based on, you know, the book is going to auction and we need to pay this much if we want to get it, keep it from the, the hands of these other guys. Um, or, but it, it was total guesswork. Um, then when a second or third book comes out, there's sales numbers behind that author. Um, so that becomes the deciding factor. We paid you X for your very first book, but now that we can see what your sales numbers are like, you know, for your third book, when we sign this new contract, we're only going to pay you this, you know, like those kind of decisions have been made. Um, but they're looking at Amazon very closely and those, those sales numbers, because, you know, th that proving ground used to exist only on the traditional side. They had to write that big check. They had to bring in that debut author. They had to see where that debut title went, um, before they understood what that person or that, that product was able to produce and, you know, revenue wise be able to, was able to bring in. Um, now they can look to Amazon numbers, you know, a, a debut mm -hmm. author, you know, that that's been indie published for a couple of titles can walk in just like you did with a spreadsheet and say, well, you know, this is what I sold last year. Here's what this particular title has sold. This is what my series has sold. Um, here's what happened when I started a new series. You know, like we've got all that kind of data walking through the gate. Um, and just like, like Jay said, it, it really is a, a book by book thing now. Like I, I don't think I would sign, you know, any, any kind of contract beyond maybe two or three books at the most. I, I wouldn't want to lock myself into something like that. You're, you're better off approaching the entire thing as a free agent, you know, holding up that book and, and, you know, trying to figure out where it's, it's best going to be placed. Um, at least that, that's how I'm looking at it right now. Now, you just you kind of just let in naturally to a question I want to ask you personally, too, that I wrote down um, that, that I am curious about, because this is something I hear a lot. Um, I, I'd often heard that um, and, and I get asked about this a lot, like uh, that, like what bear? Let me just ask a how I have it. So like, is it do you feel like it's easier for a new, completely unpublished author to get a traditional deal or someone who's already self-published who has good numbers? Like, and why I ask is because I've heard a lot of people say, well, if you're looking at getting a traditional deal, you maybe shouldn't self-publish because if the book doesn't sell well, then that's going to count against you. But like, are, so I guess what I'm asking is, is like, are traditional publishers more likely to, to sign someone who ha like, do they want you to indie publish to prove yourself first or like a full platform and social media yeah, followers or and all that? Do they want you to have that coming in or are they still cool with signing like new authors who don't have a platform and who are coming in cold? Well, I can tell you in 2015, right after, you know, 
I, I would have I, when Fourth Monkey was coming out. I, I had a number of publishers that wanted it, um, so we had like about a week or so where I was just taking phone calls with these different publishers. Um, and you know, I always got the impression that I was on one line, one side of the phone call, and on the other was one of those you know speaker phones in the middle of a conference table with like six or seven people all sitting around. Um, and they would all chime in initially about how much they they liked the book. Um, and then the very next question was, well, what does your social media platform look like? How many followers yeah. do you have on Facebook and on Twitter and this and that? I, I, I think everybody is realizing at this point social media platforms don't play as much of a, a you know, a piece that they're, they're not as important as, as some people thought they were. Um, definitely not worth the time that I, I see a lot of authors put in. Um, but those were questions that were definitely raised. Um, I, I do think what, you know, the, the flip side of what I had just mentioned is also true. If, if you're an indie published author and you're not selling well, and then you try to sell into the traditional world, they'll, you know, not only will they look at those same, you know, they'll go back and look at those figures, you know, they'll still want to see your spreadsheets. They're still going to want to see your sales numbers. And if they're not there, if they're not worthwhile, you know, there's a very good chance they're going to pass on you. Mm. Um, so that, you know, it's one of the conversations I have with everybody before they publish that very first book, you know, before you come out of the gate, you know, Jay and I have talked about this, that book needs to be a five star read. It needs to be perfect as close to it as you can get, you know, completely professionally edited. It needs to be something that any traditional publisher would buy in a heartbeat before you can consider putting it out. If, if you try to sell it into that world first, you know, and agents pass on the book and publishers pass on the book, everybody passes on the book and then you decide you're going to indie publish it. Um, you know, that's just, you're, you're shooting yourself in the foot because, you know, your sales numbers just aren't going to be there. You know, the book is going to come out. You're going to get, you know, the four or five star, you know, or four or five reviews that are glowing from your friends and family. And then real readers are going to actually find it and start picking it apart. And your reviews are, you know, you're going to end up at like a two and a half, three star. Um, that's the reputation that the publishers and the agents are actually going to see. That's the benchmark that they're going to use when they evaluate whatever it is you put in front of them next. Yeah. And I remember... I, I, last year, I went to um, a really small talk locally with uh, the author Jeff Goins, um, who uh, who lives here, and he was saying too that uh, he was talking about getting a traditional deal, and he was saying that, and he writes nonfiction, and uh, but he was saying like one of the big things publishers are looking at too is like how many people we have on a mailing list, and he was saying they want, and I actually thought this number was pretty low for nonfiction, but he was saying they want. Like if, if you have at least 5,000 people, then you're in pretty good shape. Um, and that number seemed really low for nonfiction because it's a lot easier to get people on a mailing list for nonfiction than fiction. Um, uh, like what's your experience there with like the mailing list numbers? Like I'm, I'm guessing that's probably something they're looking at. Yeah, the mailing list is the only thing I think that's really stood the t the the you know the time. Yeah, you know, like social media and stuff. People have oh, you got to have Facebook, you've got to have this, you got to have that. Now they're realizing no, you, you really no. don't. Um, but that mailing list that that actually is big. Um, and I've had publishers ask to see my Mailchimp data. They want to know exactly how many people I've got on each list. They want to know what that open rate is. Um, they're mm -hmm. you know and, and they're drilling down. They're comparing that to the sales numbers that I that I give them on you know other spreadsheets. And they're looking at that and they understand it now. Um, where where they may not have before. Um, and personally, I think I've got around ten thousand some people on my my total list, and I and I whittled that down because I initially had tried the um, the Mark Dawson approach, you know, where you give a book away for free to to try and get people to sign up for your list. Um, I, I quickly learned that you can you know get your list to explode doing that, but most of those people are worthless, you know, because they they you know they got 
they found you because they got something for free. They expect to get something for free. So if I put a traditionally published book in front of them at fourteen ninety nine, you know they're they're not going to buy it, you know, because they want something for free. Um, so all those kind of things are are taken into consideration. But I, I think the the ratio of of buys, you know, through a, a mailing list is, is huge. Like that's always had a you know a really good return rate, uh, and, and I don't think that's going away. It, it's something that I've I've always focused on, and I think every author should. Um, even if you know you're starting at zero, starting at one when you put out that first book, but just make sure you have a system in place to start capturing people from the get-go as early as possible and, and stay in front of them. Um, yeah. I also don't hound my my list. I, I send a message out, you know, for pre-orders, and I send another one out when a book comes out. Um, if I've got a big announcement, you know, like a film or TV thing, then I'll I'll send something out for that. But I don't I don't get in front of my audience too often. I'm I'm not that guy that's emailing them once a week or once a month you know, with general randomness. I mean, most, most people don't want to hear from me that much. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because I started, I've, I, I think I started my first email list in like 2012 or 2013. And at one point, I probably had 15, 10 to 15,000 people on my list. And uh, I'm now down to less than 2,000 because I, I had the same experience as you, JD. I, I was a little more aggressive, uh, I think, with my list building. I know Zach got uh, really good leads because he was putting call to actions in the back of his books. I was doing giveaways and cross promos, and it was all above board, it was totally legit, but I, I had the same experience. I had thousands of people on that list who either you know downloaded that free book and then never opened anything else again, would never buy anything, and over the years, I keep trimming it down and I, and I, I, part of me wonders if I should be doing that because like if the, if the people who don't know are judging my list based on its size, it looks terrible. But if they base, if they judge it based on the open rate or the click through rate, gonna say, it's, like, it's stupendous. You you'll, know? you'll have that to look at. And like yeah. JD said, they're like, even if they don't ask for it, you can just make a point to say, okay, well, look, would you rather have someone with 2000 people with this open rate or talk to an author who has 8,000 people, but their open rate is like 30% less than mine is or something like that, you know, like, um, so I think that, I don't know, to me, the, I mean, obviously size matters, I guess you could say <laughs> like that is important, but I, I think your open rates say a lot more. And if you could, also, if you explain it to a publisher, just maybe I'm giving publishers too much credit. I don't know. <laughs> like, but I feel like maybe if you explain it to them like that, then I think someone smart would totally get what you've done. You no, I, I think it's it's important that they understand that you understand. Um, yeah. And at the same time, like those click through rates, you know, that that's not necessarily a you know a hundred percent viable number because yeah. a lot of people are behind firewalls and things where that data isn't allowed to transmit back. So right. people are clicking and they're opening that message, but you know, Mailchimp isn't able to see that. Um, and I'm I'm sure there's a website out there that details you know what percentage of your list probably falls under that, and you can kind of figure it out. But I mean, curating a list, I think, is is important. Uh, you got to you know kind of trim that fat get some of those people out of there because ultimately you're paying for every single send that you you put out there and why throw money at something that's not necessarily working yeah yeah i agree and and like jay said you know i was lucky when i built my list because i uh, you know i didn't fall for the freebie thing and doing all that stuff like because I, I i figured out early on i was like well the, i get people on there but like do i want those people you know and so i built most of my list with ctas of like People had already bought book one, but I was going to give them book two for free. So I already knew they'd read the book and that they bought it and they were into it and that they were willing to purchase. And so my open rates have stayed pretty well because of that. And I've had pretty good engagement. But uh, so I've been lucky. But, uh, I, I, you know, so those are things to think about. You know, don't 
I tell authors all the time, I'm like, you know, be really careful about the giveaways you do and like, you know, um, being caught up, you know, I try to get as niche as possible. So for instance, like if I, if I was going to do some kind of giveaway or something, I'm not just going to do like a general sci-fi thing. Like I'm going to do post-apoc or like zombie fiction or whatever to really like, that's the person I want. The people who read that, I don't want just some general, like let's throw a bunch of sci-fi books in, which could be space books and all this other stuff. Like, I don't want that. I want the people who I know are going to read my stuff and like you said, more than that, though, people who are going to be willing to pull out their wallet when it's time, like those are the people you want on your list. Yeah, I mean, you, you did it the right way. It's, it's much better to build the list, you know, slow and steady and make sure you get the right people in there than it is to try and bog it down. I mean, get, doing the, the giveaway thing and getting a, a lot of numbers straight off the bat, to me, that's no different than, you know, if you go back a couple of years, people were selling Twitter followers, you know, like you get 10,000 Twitter followers for, you know, 100 bucks or whatever it might be. Like, sure, your, your stats look great if somebody look at looks at that one, you know, your homepage. But beyond that, those people are useless. I mean, most of them are probably bots. You know, they're just they're creating clutter. You, you, you just don't want them voting in elections and yeah. 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 <laughs> so do you guys feel like, I know Jay, you and I have talked about this, like, you know, we compare the publishing industry a lot to the music industry and a lot of the same things that happen and, but feeling like they're just much further behind. Like it's taken them. You'd think they would look at the music industry and be like, okay, this is where things are going. So we need to catch up. Like, I don't know. Does it feel like it feels like, it kind of, and I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, like it kind of feels like traditional publishers that were starting to catch up a little bit. Like, do you guys feel like that that shift is like really happening now? Oh, I, I can tell you for sure it is. I mean, if, if you go into a, you know, go into Random House, you know, and, and, and walk into one of their conference rooms in a marketing meeting. You mean I can Simon and Schuster that, Penguin Random House? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I can guarantee there, there's an intern in that room now that has been tasked with, you know, heading over to self-publishing formula and, and listening to Mark Dawson's podcast and, and staying on top of what it is they're doing. You know, the in, interns are being asked to do that at this point. If you go back two or three years, like that was something that was probably happening, but nobody was talking about it. And before that, if you listen to any of those things, it would probably get you fired. Um, you know, so they're they're gradually coming around. You know, it's just like you had mentioned at the, the get go, like all these things are slowly merging and, and becoming one. And it's funny that you brought up the music thing because, I you know, I used to work for RCA Records way back in the, in the day. And like I've seen so many similar things, you know, like the marketing products and just, you know, the rise and fall of artists and all those kind of things. The only thing that hasn't really hit the publishing industry that hit music was Napster. You know, like there really hasn't been a, you know something that much of a you know a devastating effect um and that doesn't mean that it's not coming it, it still could i mean you know the, the current marketplace you know with all you can eat like audio audio like that could be it um you know it's, it's really hard to say at this point i don't think that's going to happen though because I, I i think that napster came at a time that um it was so new at the time like digital music was such a new thing and like if you if you look at that, people aren't like there aren't really people illegally downloading music anymore because the industry has made it where it's just more convenient to have Spotify or Apple Music or something like that. Like it's easier to get that stuff now and just to pay a little bit for it. And I think that's one place where books were ahead, where like people don't necessarily need to download ebooks because way easier just to go get it on your Kindle or on Amazon or whatever. Well, you know, I, so I don't know if I, you remember this, but like I, I was working in finance back when when all this stuff played out, and Steve Jobs gave a speech at the time, and he said the only way we're going to beat this is if we come up with an easier way for people to get to their music, and he yeah. created iTunes. 
you know, and, and I think that that particular model has, has kind of, you know, been used now for, for publishing as well. But, you know, somebody had that conscious thought. They, they had to make it easier, which is sad because it wasn't about, you know, like, I, I, you know, they weren't trying to get people to stop stealing. Like people weren't, they were perfectly fine with stealing music. It would, just came down to what's the easiest way to get music. It, you know, it wasn't a moral decision. It was a, an ease of use decision. Yeah, and I think the publishers today have an advantage over the record uh, labels of of uh, yesteryear, and they have they have two things going for them. They are op very open minded to all of the indie tactics, whereas the the recording industry just put their head in the sand and pretended like it wasn't happening. Publishers know this is happening, and and they they're playing. The other thing is. Uh, they have all the indie information out there to use, <laughs> like all the podcasts and blogs and, and books that indies have been writing and talking about for years are accessible to anyone who wants them. So it's not difficult for a, you know, a Simon Schuster, Penguin, Random House, Hofton, Mifflin, whatever, to, uh, to, to go and grab the same books and, and, and the same courses that we've been using and use those themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, I, you know, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole because I think next month the episode is going to be kind of about like the state of the industry type thing. And this kind of falls into that. But, um, you know, books is really the only place where subscription services also have not completely taken over yet. Like, I mean, they're here. I mean, obviously there's Kindle Unlimited, there's Audible, but that's I think that's coming. I, I think I think that the future of everything is subscriptions. I mean, I'm even... You know, I follow the video gaming industry really close. And if you look at some of the stuff Microsoft is doing, <clears throat> like it's, re it's a really interesting time right now because these new consoles came out and PlayStation is still pushing the, you know, we're going to, you know, we want to sell you the razor blade, but then we really want to sell you the blades. So like their deal is like, we want you to buy our $500 console, then buy our $60, $70 games individually. But Microsoft is like, we want you to, own, you can use any of our consoles, but we want you to buy our $14.99 subscription service, which is basically the Netflix uh, video games where you can play over 200 games for that $15 a month. And so um, it, that shift is, that shift is, coming into all the different mediums. It's already with Netflix. You know, I, again, we're seeing it with games. It's there with music. And I think it's only a matter of time before that comes to books, you know, and we're on, on a bigger level than we're seeing now. So. You know, it's funny. Well, the model that you're talking about, like Hewlett Packard was, was famous for that. They did it with laser printers. You know, like you could buy a laser printer cost them, let's say $200 to produce. They were selling them for $69 because they knew they could get you for 80 bucks for the toner over exactly. and over and over again. Yeah. Um, we just put, are you guys familiar with those little free lending libraries? Yeah. 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 So we just put one of those out in front of our house and, you know, I was watching somebody, you know, who, who came to it, you know, and she took a book out and she put two in and then, and then she left, you know, which is kind of the norm. And, and I started thinking like, well, what if somebody were to actually use that as a model? Like if, if you remember like record stores and I don't know if they still do this, but you used to be able to bring in your CDs and sell them for like two or $3 and then you could buy one for five bucks, you know, like that kind of thing. I'm wondering if we might see something similar with books where you can, you know, like book vending machines where you can trade in books in order to get a discount on another title that you're going to take. Um, book vending machines, I think, is where the, the future is, is at. And I, and I still think it's going to come down to a print-on-demand system that's capable yeah. of generating a book right there on the fly exactly. inside of a couple minutes. You know, you drop your, your 10 bucks into the machine, it spits out a brand-new paperback, and you walk away. Um, I, I think that's where bookstores and everything else are, are all going. It's just a matter of somebody getting the cost down. Well, so to kind of wrap, we're, we're, I guess we're kind of getting against time, but just I, I do want to ask you, like, one more thing, J.D., specifically. Um 
to kind of bring this back to our original conversation, but like if you're, so like as an indie author, and I guess selfishly, I'll just use me as an example, like, you know, someone who has a back catalog, I've published 25, 30 books, like pursuing a traditional deal, like what's the biggest, like if, if I'm going to focus on one thing, whether it's um, building a mailing list or like just focusing on writing the best book I can, like what would your advice be? Like what the biggest thing for anyone listening who like wants to make that transition, what should they really be focusing on? It, it really comes down to creating the best possible book, yeah. you know, because everything else will fall into place. I mean, if, if you create a, medi- a mediocre book, you can get a mailing list together, um, but it's not going to be sustainable. Like word, word of mouth in the end is the only thing that really sells books effectively. And the only way that happens is if it's a title that is just so good, you know, people close that cover and they have to pick up the phone and, and tap out a message or call somebody and just say, hey, I just read this and you need to check it out. Like that's ultimately what sells books um, and, and you need to be there. Um, so if, if I gave anybody any, any particular advice, again, it's just make sure that whatever you're producing before it leaves your desk and you start showing it to other people, make sure it, it is as perfect as possible. It's got to be a five-star read from start to finish. You can't cut any corners there. There are no shortcuts. You have to be able to write a, a solid book. Nice. I think that's good advice no matter what. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So, cause I think, uh, like you're saying, word of mouth at the end of the day is the best advertising you can get. <laughs> so if you know, you write a good enough book, hopefully that can happen. So yes, yeah. sir. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, we have a, uh, a question for the audience here. So we'd like to know what is your strategy with regard to publishing indie and pursuing traditional publishing? And you can leave that comment for us over at writersincpodcast.com. Uh, next week on the show, we're welcoming uh, Kathleen Sweeney from Bookbrush. So if you're interested in figuring out how to make great-looking images for your books and your social media campaigns, you're going to want to tune in for that. And if you want to join us over at patreon.com slash writersincpodcast for as little as a dollar a month, you'll get access to the exclusive Slack channel and additional Q&A episodes. And finally, we would love it if you would spread the word about Writers Inc. to all your writer friends, because we all know word of mouth is the only way to promote. So, gentlemen, this has been a a fun first episode. And uh, Zach, we'll see you back here, I guess, at the end of next month. Yeah, awesome. See you guys later. All right. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.